You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. The Gas Lamp Inn and Saloon, Cincinnati, Ohio. I don't think I have a friend who hasn't almost killed me by accident at some point. I sometimes think that male friendships are closer to a coordinated stunt show than a real interpersonal relationship. When I announced to my then fiancé which male friends of mine would be standing next to me as a groomsman at our wedding... She reflected on all the stories she had heard about each one and asked, Hasn't each of these people tried to kill you? I wouldn't say they were trying, I assured her. Rather, they reached a place in the evening where miscalculations happened. She was, of course, referring to my buddy Jeff, who had once nearly killed me in what I've chosen to call a pyro technicality. But I don't blame him. It wasn't his fault. We were day drinking. It was in Cincinnati. We had been on a bender for a few days. After waking late one morning, Jeff led us to a new bar in a new neighborhood. This is a good, proper bar, Jeff told me while opening the door. We quickly and happily began drinking. Around 2 p.m., with the sun still beaming outside, Jeff asked if I wanted to get food. Not quite yet, I answered. I am philosophically opposed to leaving dive bars in the afternoon, as I think both nature and the Almighty want you to remain inside that bar until all the normal people, the folks traveling as part of commerce, go home. That's why God blinds you with sunlight if you leave too early. But, I told Jeff, don't let me go too long without food. This night could get ugly if we don't eat. My next memory was the bartender slapping me awake while screaming, It's last call. The both of you have to leave. I looked around. Jeff was under a dartboard dancing. We were the only two people in the bar. I apologized and closed my tab. Where are we? I asked Jeff. Same bar, my man. He answered while trying to do the splits. The bill came to $40. I love this fucking state. The bartender looked at me, mystified. I explained that I was from Ohio originally, but had been in Chicago for a couple of years. And that if my friend and I were to get equally drunk in Chicago, the tab would be ten times the amount. However, I later learned from my credit card statements that the bill I was celebrating as such a cheap triumph was actually the fourth tab I had opened and closed at that bar that day. Every time a new bartender clocked in, 
I settled my tab with the previous server. And, thinking that was my only bill for the day, would start telling everyone how affordable Ohio was and buy another round for the house. I was spending money like an amnesic lottery winner and didn't realize it until the following month when my credit card statement informed me that I had emptied my checking account into a dive bar along the Ohio River. Back then, reading my credit card statements was like listening to the tapes of a black box recorder on a crashed airplane. However horrific, they were the only way to discover what really happened. Sometimes the amounts seemed impossible, given how cheap the bars and the cities were. $350 at Rumors in Cedar Rapids, Iowa? Did I get drunk and purchase one of their ovens? Jeff and I stumbled out of the bar, and the fullness of how much time had elapsed hit us. It was now pitch black. The streets bustling with activity when we entered, were now empty. The wind was howling around the corners, and, most noticeably, a wholly new shift of animals was working and caroling. A full chorus of owls and crickets and tree frogs, where once there was the odd yelp from a bored dog. We meandered away from the bar and turned a corner, whereupon we were stopped by the most arresting sight. An amber orb, glowing brightly, but a foot or two above our heads. It was beautiful, imbued with a strange hypnotic gravity, as if it were speaking to us from some ancient and ethereal plane. That street lamp, I said to Jeff, it's beautiful. We should take it home. How? he asked. I think if you get on my shoulders, we can unscrew it. Okay, but what would we do with it? Easy, I replied. We turn it into a chandelier. Some people, when they become drunk, think they are sexy. Others believe they are good at fighting. Still others think they have somehow become incredibly witty. But my preferred delusion, when I'm inebriated, is something that will get you into far more trouble. I think I'm handy when I'm drunk. I will carry home loose bits of abandoned wood, believing that I can turn it into a coffee table. I will begin projects I would never consider sober, such as replacing the fuse in a dishwasher. And on this night, I believed I could convert a public street lamp into a chandelier, despite having zero experience in either glassworking or electricity. Unquestioning, Jeff clambered onto me, balanced himself against the lights pole, and readied to unscrew the bulb. He began twisting the glass to take it off but paused after just a few revolutions, saying, This glass is hot. These are old light bulbs, I answered back. We can't expect them to be energy efficient, which was an incorrect characterization as to why the orb was hot, an error likely caused by the 14 hours of drinking. See, we were not merely unscrewing some ordinary light bulb. We were removing the top of a gas street lamp. Some drunk people will put on their beer goggles and misidentify someone as being attractive when they are perhaps not. My and Jeff's beer goggles had caused us to misidentify fire. Dive into science. Beer goggles. Since the beginning of time, humans have noticed that alcohol very often leads to more sex. Ovid wrote, Wine prepares the heart for love unless you take too much. Making it, at around 10 BCE, 
one of the earliest references to both beer goggles and whiskey dick. Multiple studies have shown that people are usually more sexually active after drinking than when not drinking, and hooking up with a stranger is particularly correlated to drinking. And we are not the only species for which this is true. Fruit flies that drink fermented fruit have more babies than fruit flies that do not imbibe in alcohol. But what science has been less clear on is beer goggles. The idea that a person becomes more physically attractive as you drink. Studies on beer goggles are somewhat conflicting, but the general picture seems to be, no, there is no such thing as beer goggles. Now that does not mean you always wake up the next day proud and happy about who you chose to couple up with. It just means that when you made that decision the previous night, your eyes were not seeing them any differently than you are in the morning. Several early studies on beer goggles asked drinkers and non-drinkers at a bar to rate the attractiveness of other customers. And researchers found that drinkers rated people more attractive than non-drinkers, which they took as an indication that beer goggles might exist. But follow-up studies, early in the morning and outside of bars, on the same group, found that drinkers always rated people more highly, even when they were sober. The implication being, drunks see more beauty in the world. Besides seeing more beauty in others, drunks also and perhaps more importantly, see more charm in themselves. Many studies have shown that people are more confident about their own looks after two drinks. Most interestingly, though, that confidence you have after two drinks, when you are bold but haven't had so many drinks to trip down a flight of stairs yet, that confidence is actually more in line with how other people rate you. That is to say, when you get a little buzz and start feeling sexy and noticing how good you look, that image you are celebrating is how the world normally views you. Plus, beer goggles seem impossible at a physiological level. Your sense is dull with drinking, but eyesight is near the last to go. So the idea that you can be so drunk you see the world incorrectly, yet you can still form words and understand sentences, both higher level tasks, is unlikely. We know that alcohol principally affects the inhibition center of the brain which causes us to do things when drunk that our sober mind would reject as a plan, which further suggests that what we call beer goggles may just be our attraction to a person that the higher level of the brain would normally reject. Which brings me to my last point on beer goggles. I don't like the term. Beer goggles is an ugly phrase. The greatest sham respectable society duped us into believing that the people we meet and enjoy when drunk are not the people we should be fraternizing with when sober. For those reasons, I have dropped the phrase beer goggles for my personal usage, and instead, I say, I turned on the old brunoculars. To better suggest that I am seeing people more accurately and choosing more attractive people when drunk. Jeff was still struggling to free the unwieldy glass globe from its fixture wincing from the pain of the hot surface. Lick your fingers, I yelled up at him. What? It'll insulate you a little bit from the heat. Jeff licked his fingers, turned the globe a bit, then licked again, turned again, and so on. Eventually, we heard a distinct pop. It was at this point, I think we realized that what we had here was a gas street lamp. The instant the bulb came off, wind and oxygen rushed in and turned what had been a small flame 
into a giant ball of fire that exploded towards Jeff, instantly singeing his eyebrows clean off. He dropped from my shoulders as the flame leapt out above, igniting the leaves of a nearby tree. We reacted, the way any reasonable people would, after discovering that they have ruined a street safety device and possibly caused a fire. We ran for a taxi. There was a cab sitting at the end of the block outside a different bar. I hurried Jeff and I over to it, opened the back door, threw Jeff in, and screamed, Go! This is one of those moments that you see all the time in old movies that does not work in real life. But you don't realize it doesn't work until you have the audacity to try it. In movies, the hero jumps into a taxi and barks, Go! Or, Follow that red car! And the cabbie dutifully puts the car in drive, hits the gas, and says something like, No problem, Mac. Who we following? But this is how it works in real life. Go! I yelled again. Where to? The cabbie asked, confused. Just go! I need an address. This town is toast, amigo! We need to roll! The cabbie reached down into the glove compartment and pulled out a can of mace. Address or get out of my cab. Art Museum. And with that, we're on our way to the Cincinnati Art Museum at 3 a.m. Whenever I visit a new city, I like to see their art museum, their zoo, and dive bars. I had not yet seen the art museum, so when an exact destination was demanded, that popped into my head. After a few stoplights, we merged onto the highway. You know, Jeff piped up as we climbed the on-ramp. Cincinnati has a really gorgeous art museum. He had no eyebrows and appeared sunburnt. Jeff, I don't think they're going to be open. Jeff put his hand through his hair, and a bundle of charred, curly stubs fell upon the back seat of the cab. What the hell was that thing? I fumed, after seeing how much of Jeff's scalp had been burnt off. I mean, it's the 21st century. You can't be surprising people with gas street lamps. Those are death traps. This town needs to put some warnings on those things. I was very much trying to make the case that we were the victims in this incident. We probably have grounds to sue this city, Jeff concurred. It's a real case, I agreed. I'm definitely going to sue that bar for not warning us. As I railed against the perceived injustice, we were deposited outside a lightless art museum. Weeks later... When I received the credit card statement and realized I had closed six tabs that day, I also learned the name of the bar I intended to sue for not warning me about the possibility of life-threatening illuminations. The Gas Lamp Inn and Saloon. I spent 14 hours inside a bar named after the gas street lamps around us, yet still felt there was no realistic warning. Hemingway once said, Always do sober what you said you would do drunk. That will teach you to keep your mouth shut. Of all my drunk plans that were never carried out sober, suing the city of Cincinnati for not warning me about gas street lamps is the one I regret most. As the trial would have been a great demonstration of how many facts you can miss when drinking. Realistically, the process of just finding a lawyer willing to take on our case would probably be enough to make us rethink day drinking again. You want me, the lawyer would confirm, to sue the city of Cincinnati because you guys were able to unscrew a gas ball that was 10 feet high 
and had a clear burning flame inside it. And you did this after spending 12 hours in a bar named after these gas lamps. I wouldn't word it exactly that way, but yes. The next day we woke up, Jeff missing his eyebrows and much of his hair. And me with no money, not only from the drinking, but the taxi rides to and from the art museum. Seeing all this, I offered a summation of the previous evening. I think last night might have been a milestone. How so? Jeff asked. I think it's the first time two people caused more damage to the neighborhood by walking home drunk rather than driving home drunk. Driving would have been a bad idea, Jeff replied. Agreed. But I'm not sure walking was a great idea either. We nearly started a bushfire in Cincinnati. Okay, Jeff concluded. What should our plan be for tonight? Easy, I answered. I began all bad plans with easy. I continued. We walk to the bar, right? Responsibly. But when we get there, we tell them we drove. We even show keys. Then we get super drunk. They'll say, hey, fellas, let us call you a cab home. You can pick up the car tomorrow. They'll even pay for it. It's bulletproof, Jeff agreed. That night, we walked to a bar 10 blocks from Jeff's house, got hammered, claimed that we had driven there, and, as planned, the bar ordered us a cab upon seeing how drunk we were and even agreed to pay for it. Isn't it beautiful when a plan comes together? I nudged Jeff as we entered the cab. We made it one turn in the cab before Jeff puked all over the back seat. The driver told us we owed him $200, or he and his cousins would break our arms. It took us a while to get the payment together. In the end, we'd offered him all that we could muster, $150. He agreed, but not without griping. You shouldn't even be in my cab. Why the hell do you need a ride for a few blocks? We're working on a system, I answered calmly. There was a pause, and I added, it's not going well. The day the music died, when puking in a taxi became illegal. In 2009, Chicago taxi drivers asked the city to approve a 22% increase in passenger fares to offset higher fuel costs. Mayor Daley quickly vetoed the proposal, stating that the economy was still recovering from the housing crisis and Chicagoans could not afford higher taxi fares. But, as a compromise, Daly offered to greenlight the taxi industry's separate request for a $50 fee when a passenger vomits in a cab. Only in Chicago. Only in Chicago could a major transportation industry ask for a 22% overall raise in revenue. And because of how drunk everyone is, the mayor counters with, don't you think you'd make more money in puke fees? The fee was approved making Chicago the first city in the U.S. to institute a fee for puking in a cab. Upon its passage, Chicago newspapers reached out to civic leaders in other big cities asking if they had a comparable fee. My favorite response is Boston's. No, we don't have a puking fee. To my knowledge, it's free to puke in a cab, answered Boston police spokesman Joe Zanoli. Only in Boston... 
the one city that is perhaps crazier than Chicago, would the lead police spokesman talk about puking in cabs like it's walking in a nature preserve? Free as far as I know. As though you'd be a fool not to take advantage of the great local prices. This is one of the reasons why I love Chicago. We trailblaze in workers' rights. Chicago created unions, the five-day work week, and the right not to have a Grand Slam breakfast spewed at you while you drive a 1.5-ton vehicle. London dropped its dignity. Yeah. So has...